Welcome to the RSP Quick Game. Mark Schofield, Matt Waldman, um, Urban Meyer might be lurking around somewhere around here. I don't know. He better Will not he be. Even? Yeah. Will he be in Jersey? There we go. There we go. And, and I think that's quite deserving considering that we just mentioned that. So, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's yeah, playing look, a little look, Al Pacino we're, coach. We're going to go off script here. Urban's in a guts to go situation, right? Yeah, like, this is a guts to go situation. Somebody like, told I, him to do this, or he figured it out. This yeah, is I mean, help. yeah, because you have Trevor Lawrence. Like, you, you got to move on from this guy. If they have a bye week coming up, week seven before Halloween, I'd, I'd set the over under on when he gets fired for that bye week, week seven. And I am hammering the under because honestly, Matt, I don't know if he's there tomorrow. Like, th- yeah. this is this is a situation spiraled out of control. Like he couldn't face the team after this. He didn't fly back with the team and then did this. This is a guts to go situation. You're not at Columbus anymore. You're not yeah. gone. You're in the NFL. Like this is I think this is indicative of a lot of college coaches who never coached in the NFL yep. who literally don't realize that when you work for a state, which is usually what happens, yep. I've seen some crazy state stuff from people who have clout based on the job and role that they were given. And they are given some leeway to do things that I just think are amazingly corrupt, but because it's in a big machine, it's on a small level and they get used to thinking that they can get away or do whatever they want, you you know, and they'll be, and then when they get somewhere where they actually have to work hard and now they got to blow off some steam and not saying that they don't work hard in the college game. They work tremendously they hard. Absolutely but, the, do. Yeah. but there are certain people who just, you, you know, have a, when they have a certain role, they get to a certain point and it's like that you see the true thing kind of hang out and yeah. we're seeing yeah. the true I colors. Mean, he, he thought he was invincible. He goes to this bar in Ohio with an Ohio State pullover on and doesn't imagine what's going to be. No, he's not the coach at Ohio State anymore. He's the coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars. People are going to, in this day and age, tune cameras on him. And to do what he did, man, and then to, to just be – he was already on thin ice to begin with. The laundry list of stuff he's done wrong since being hired by this organization is longer than my arm. Yeah. I think and he knew. Just, I think he knew. I, I mean, honestly, I think he knew. I think he wants out. I think he knows he's not cut out for this. And – because otherwise, I mean, if he was just trying to get his game on, let's just be honest here, a man his age should probably understand, you know, as 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 my wife would put it. She said, you know, somebody like this, I mean, he's got to know what he's doing because just to rub his wife's face in that after all these yeah. years, he, yeah. you know, he's probably hired professional um, assistance. Let's just put it that way. Um, in the past, and kept God. it discreet, you know, and kept it discreet. The yeah. fact that he decided not to to do that was was just a way of saying I want to blow my life up and start over because yeah. the, and it's obviously the pressure of this. But I mean, you, you look at I mean James Robinson is a perfect example of a player who you know Urban Meyer came in and as as our buddy Eric Stoner would say. He came in and decided he was going to draft and acquire players off of Tom Lemming's top high school recruits list or people that he worked with or faced at Ohio State and at Florida. And, you know, he looked at James Robinson and probably said, well, that's a nice little story. And, you, you know, wait till I bring in some of my guys. And then he realized that the best guy wasn't one of his guys. But it took, what, three games for them to figure that out? Three and a half, you know? So, yeah, there you go. So, let's get back onto onto the the trail here, as um, tenuous as it is. But what... (laughs) It's always a tenuous trail. (laughs) Yes. What did the Pats do to limit Tom Brady? Or did they really limit him? I mean, they didn't really limit him. He had some throws that he missed in that game, but he also put the winning shot right into the hands of Antonio Brown. And that was a tremendous sequence because Jonathan Jones, number 31 on New England, goes down, has to miss a couple of plays, comes back. They have the vertical shot that Brady and Brown didn't quite connect on, but Brown was wide open. Then they go right back to it because they're thinking, you know, Jonathan Jones is dinged up. He can't cover. Jones was a better position on the second throw, but Brady put the ball right where it needed to be. 
So I don't think it's necessarily that, you know, they shut him down. There were some drops in that game. Cameron Braid had a drop on a little slant route in that game. The weather conditions were what they were. But New England did do some interesting stuff defensively. Some of what I thought they might do, some drop seven, drop eight stuff to try to take away throwing lanes, to try to make Brady throw ball and throw balls into tighter windows. They blitzed him occasionally, not a ton. They did some one cross stuff where, you know, you show too high, you bring one of the safeties down to take away the crosses that we know Brady loves to throw. I mean, I'm not surprised that they had a, a pretty good game plan for him. There's probably no coach better suited to get into the mind of Tom Brady than Bill Belichick, who was in his ear the entire time the two were together in, in New England for the most part. And so I'm not surprised that they had a good game plan. I'm not surprised that they executed as well as they did. But I think it was more Brady missed on some throws because of the weather, hit on some throws that were dropped, and the Buccaneers just kind of survived. Yeah, I think it was totally a combination of those things. And I love that you brought up the one cross because yeah. I did see – I noticed that there were some things that they did like that to – I didn't think they limited him, but what they did was we're – we know what you don't like. Yeah. And and so we're going to we know what you're going to have to work at to do and at least make you work at it. And he did and and some of the results, you know, it was a combination of all three things, but some of that means is okay, we're going to we're going to force you to play a certain way. And we know you can do it, yeah. but we're going to do it because we think this is the highest percent chance we have of either creating a mistake or, you know, not getting an accurate pass or, you know, getting out of here alive without getting yeah. skinned, you know. Yeah. So I think that that, yeah, overall that was fine. So I watched Mac Jones again, you know, after the first week in Miami and I didn't watch him the past two. Um, and then I watched him this past week. And one of the things that stuck out to me was, you know, obviously the quick game looks great. You know, the manipulation in the middle of the field looks pretty solid. Handling pressure looks like Mac Jones we saw at Alabama for the most part. Um, but what I I thought I saw more of at Alabama and what I thought I even saw more of during the preseason was um, velocity on throws. And it just seems like there was no velocity on, on these throws, at least, you know, this past week. And... I'm, you know, to me, I thought, well, is he, is he arm weary from camp and from last year? Is that possible? Or is that a little bit half baked? Is it that he's, is it that he's, you know, used to playing under pressure so much this, this year and he's facing certain kinds of pressure that he's kind of thrown off his back foot a good bit, which I'm seeing that happen, maybe not getting all the cleats in the ground. And then the one that I'm just mostly kind of believing right now, Mark is, he needs to get stronger and he, he, and this is going to be an off season thing where he needs to get his lower body stronger, a little bit of upper body stronger. He's going to have to learn how to really utilize his lower body when it is, gets that strength to get the most out of it. Just like Joe Burrow needed to go through yep. a little bit of that. So are we looking at a Joe Burrow situation or are we looking at a Bruce Gregkowski? It's never going to happen type of thing. I think it's more a Joe Burrow situation. Uh, I, I do think that, there's a couple things going on. There are moments when he has to remember that he's playing in the NFL and it's not Saturday afternoon against Missouri. Like you can't put touch on some throws, particularly cross and routes, stuff up the seams that you could get away with on Saturdays because the windows will close faster. He had one Jacoby Myers on a crosser back in week one against Jason McCourty, who's not the best defensive back in the NFL. But as we saw in Super Bowl 53, he can close in a hurry. And it's wide open. It's well, it's NFL wide open because Myers has three steps on him, but he puts air under it and it gives Jason McCourty time to recover, make a play at the catch point. There's also moments where I think the pressure is part of it. You look at the interception that he threw, that was the right read. You get the two high, it's that safety splitter we talked about last week, where you know that guy has to really get his turn, his head turned around to try to make a throw on it nine times out of ten. He won't. This is the one time out of 10 where he did. Ross Carco made a good play. If you put a little more velocity zip on it, some more RPMs on it, you might be able to hit up on that throw even when he turns around. The problem, you get two free rushers in his face and he has to back foot it. So he doesn't have the arm right now. doesn't have the total body strength to A, make back foot throws, B, generate torque in the upper body sufficiently to get velocity on these throws, and C, when he has clean pockets to throw from, drive the cleats, you know, 
power through the cleats and up with that lower body. So it's a short-term problem that should have a fix after a season or two of being in an NFL strength and conditioning program. So I'm not worried about it yet. If we're still having this conversation next summer, next fall, next winter, then we might start to worry. But I do think this is something that he can improve upon with time. Well, one thing that doesn't get much better is getting a chance to watch uh, Mark Schofield and John Ledyard uh, commentate on games. That should be a fun thing to for people to check out. Um, is there? A yeah, we had you, some fun. Yeah, it, it's going to be pewterreport.com. I don't know if we're going to do it again. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll pop on one more time. We did it for the first half of week one. John and I then did it uh, for the entirety of the Bucks Pats game uh, on Sunday night. We had a ton of fun. You know, we were breaking stuff down real time. We were reacting to stuff in real time. We were making fun of each other in real time. Like, it was basically like, you know, Romo and Nance with a two-drink minimum kind of situation. So, <laughs> no, we had fun with it. And, you know, we had a lot of viewers to it, which, which was very cool. And, yeah, you know, I might pop back in for another game this year. We'll see. Sweet. Well, you can certainly, you know, you can find Mark at Mark Schofield on Twitter. You can find him at a variety of places. Pat's Pulpit still a... Still, a, still, an still old doing one. the Sco Show. Yeah, still, doing still doing the Sco Show. show. Yeah. yeah. So you can find him there. He's with Rachel Prevett doing work with um, Bleeding Green. He was with Blogging the Boys, breaking down Dak Prescott. Uh, Dak Watch week. week Four. I mean, man, we're just you know yeah. just doing stuff. And of everywhere. course, TD Wire, where he yeah. writes a ton of great content. So I do. Check I write there Mark. still. Still right there. there still. Yeah. Oh, do you? Interesting. Do you? Oh, do you? I don't I, know. Maybe. I don't know. Something happened. No, no. I'm just kidding. Okay. It's just, we are in the October grind, my friend. We are deep in the October grind. We are. And part of that grind is getting the, the rookie scouting portfolio together. Please go buy it. And I'm telling you, you will, it, it's the best thing I do. And you're basically looking at 150 plus rookie prospects, at quarterback, running back, wide receiver, and tight end. Um, I've been doing it since 2006. It is one of the most looked at um, guides not just for fantasy for dynasty leagues, but also by, according to at least college recruiters I've spoken with in the Division One game, is one of the two most looked at guides as a cross-checking device for NFL scouts Ooh. who come in. So that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. So you're going to find a ton of analysis, one of the most comprehensive looks you're going to see. You can find more about it at mattwaldmanrsp.com. Go buy it. You go get it. You you will not regret it. You will not regret it, even now, because you get you, you get some evergreen stuff, you know, for your waiver wire if you're yep. a fantasy player, especially in redraft leagues. But obviously, it's great for dynasty. So, one of the guys that we both really loved, and you know, who got a ton of uh, attention, you know, during this draft cycle, and we were pretty early in on it, you know, talking about it was Trey Lance. Yep. He got to play the second half of the 49ers game due to the calf injury that Garoppolo had. Basically, over the course of a full game, he would have been close to a, you know, 300. He would have had a, over 300 yards and four touchdowns at the rate that he was going. Two two passing touchdowns, 41 yards rushing, 157 yards passing against a team in Seattle that doesn't have a great defense, yep. has some lackluster issues, but. He didn't have any game planning practice reps all week. So what what do you expect from Trey Lance now that they're going to go up against the Cardinals in a big divisional tilt? I mean, I'm trying to temper my expectations, but I am very excited to see Trey Lance get a full week of being the guy. I mean, I assume we're that's what we're going to get, you know, with Garoppolo and the calf injury. It's sort of no timetable is the last that I heard there. You know, I think for what he was thrown into, Lance performed pretty well. You're seeing – you know, some quick reads, some quick decisions. Now, obviously, I would expect Shanahan to game plan for his athleticism a bit more. I think you're going to see a lot of that boot stuff, a lot of the stuff where he can be sort of that low-pressure stretch to a defense, right? Get him to the edges, put that curl-flat defender in a bind. You know, we talked about this both last summer about the hypothetical situation where he could get dropped into this offense. Then we talked about it this summer about, you know, now – if you're that curl flat defender in that sort of boot game and you see 10 coming at you, you're not too worried about it. You can rally downhill and tackle him if he decides to run. Five's a different story. You know, that now you've got to worry about coming downhill a little bit. He's a bit more explosive as an athlete, as a runner. And so I'd imagine Kyle Shanahan is going to do some things to play to his strengths, 
you'll see some quick game stuff to get the ball out of his hands. He's good at that. We know the similarities between the offense or at least, you know, the offense that he ran at NDSU and the basic foundational structure of this offense. So, yeah, I mean, the, the Cardinals have a good defense, an athletic defense. They can close some windows in a hurry. Isaiah Simmons is playing a bigger role in that defense this year, which I'm excited to see. But I think Lance will have a good day. They might not win. You know, this is a Cardinals team that's the last remaining undefeated team. Kyler Murray is doing some Kyler Murray things. Seth Glita had a great piece about him today at PFF. Um, so I don't know if San Francisco necessarily wins this game, but I'm excited about Lance and what he might do. I am. I think this offense is going to have a chance to come alive in some different ways um, yeah. because you get a lot. You're going to get a lot more misdirection. You're going to get, I think you're going to see the option elements of the option game on display. Yeah. I mean, think about Brandon Ayuk and Debo Samuel as runners and think about, you know, just a, it, first play of the second half against Seattle. They line up in pistol with Trey Sermon in the backfield and now you're getting that horizontal stretch with the threat of Trey Lance keeping the ball and taking it around the corner, but you yeah. still get the, which opens holes even more for a guy like Sermon, who's at his best between the tackles. Not that he can't run outside, yeah. but he's at his best in that. And then you bring Eli Mitchell back, who is by far and away at his best as an outside runner. So now when Mitchell's in the backfield, you have to worry about Trey Lance taking it up inside rather than just focusing totally on Mitchell's speed to the outside. Um, when, you know, when Sermon's in the game, you're going to have to worry about that, you, you know, about um, Lance doing the same thing. And then, of course, when you add in the potential of a fly sweep, you know, yeah. from one of those receivers going from the opposite direction, you have your triple option threat right there that you can utilize. And then on top of that, you get the boot game, as you mentioned, the structures from... North Dakota State. So I expect the run game to do better than, you know, even what it's potentially capable of being. Um, and then on top of that, just the misdirection pass looks that you can get that can get these athletes running, you know, for the Cardinals, maybe over pursuing or taking bad angles here and there yep. or putting them in binds where you can get a blown coverage. So maybe a little more boom bust in certain yep. ways. But at the same time, I think that what Kyle Shanahan can do do with the playbook in certain directions he can expand it even even in areas where he's going to be a little more cautious you know with what he would have expected Trey Jimmy Garoppolo to do in the structured passing game yeah I so. mean you think about you know that in the preseason that shot play he had to Sherfield right where he's Lance is rolling left and you get that throwback post that's a throw that Garoppolo is not trying that's stuff that's now open to Shanahan and, and with Lance in the game. And that's one of those situations where, you know, PFF's Deontay Lee likes to talk about offensive flow, right? Where you get, and there was a great breakdown Nick Saban did of a touchdown gets Ole Miss this weekend on a goal line play where he also talked about flow. You get the offense flow in one way, the defense follows that flow, and then you throw back against it. You can do things like that with Lance that aren't in aren't on the call sheet when you've got Garoppolo. Yeah, one of my favorite plays, and we'll talk about you know plays that were some of our favorites, but one that I'll throw out there went against the flow that way by playing to the flow, and it was, I believe it was the Rams game this past weekend where they sent Higby. They had like a play-action rollout to the left where like um, Stafford booted to his left, and they were in a... I think in a two tight end set, but they sent two receivers out and they got the defense flowing to the left and, and the uh, tight end works as if he's working an over route from left to right, but he, he, he at his break heading to the right, he stops and reverses and then just follows the flow. So he's behind the flow and they yeah. hit him downfield for like a 20 yard gain. And I'm like, yeah. that's a perfect example of taking advantage of the defensive flow. Yeah. So, okay. Well, what was the difference, you know, or I was going to say, what a difference the threat of a team coup makes. And that's right. kind of my lead into yeah. Chicago, you know, because yep. I've been joking all week that, that basically Jason Peters went into with a bunch of players into uh, Matt Nagy's office and threatened to pull his head out through their, through the hind parts and yep. basically, you know, give him a body rearrangement if he didn't figure out 
how to do this right because he, he should know better. And, you know, but what made the difference beyond the Lions defense versus the Browns defense and what Chicago did last week? I mean, I think you saw uh, they catered the offensive system to what Justin Fields can do. It was a lot more vertical based in the passing game. There are a lot of shot plays that they called. There are a lot of, you know, routes that convert at deeper levels, whereas, you know, in Matt Nagy's system, it's more West Coast based. It's more curl flat, slant flat, all that kind of stuff, stick tosser and all those things. Whereas with Justin Fields and what he was familiar with running under Ryan Day, it was, you know, routes that could be a comeback, a post or a go. Like the conversions happen at deeper levels. And interesting enough, I think it was Chris Carter who pointed out that like, those designs, those deeper designs, give him more time to read stuff. And when you're talking about a young rookie quarterback, let's A, familiar with that stuff, and B, having to adjust to the speed of the NFL game, anything that gives them more time to read stuff is going to be good for them. And so another example, don't ask, you know, square peg, round hole, and all that stuff. I think, look, playing the Lions certainly helped, but you saw the talent that Fields has – that throw at the out route that everybody has put on the timeline this week where he gets it over the underneath defender in front of the safety over the top, like that's stuff that you can't teach. And so I, I think that's what you've got. You've got an offensive scheme, play call, script. It was more catered to where Fields is as a, as a passer in his background than anything Matt Nagy likes to call. Yeah. I mean, the first thing that came to mind to me is, they got rid of most of the five-man protection schemes, and they yeah. went with two tight ends or a tight end and a fullback. They had a lot more tight type of looks with wide receivers and tight yeah. ends. And if the tight ends were going out for passes, guess what they did? They chipped edge defenders on the way out. Um, that was a priority that either if you were in the backfield or on the wing or in line that you were getting your helmet on somebody to slow the pass rush down so that he could get those longer routes. That was part of the support of doing that, you know, some of the alignments with that. Um, I like that once they started to, and they were running the ball with often using three tight end sets and one receiver, they led into that. And Montgomery obviously had a great game. They were able to, you know, they were able to play to the strength of that line, which isn't, you know, a strong line due to injuries, but, and, you know, some existing stuff going on with them. But, you know, most NFL teams can run block if you get them in good looks. And he, and they were able to run block the threat of fields who didn't run much, but they, the threat of him running based yep. on some of the alignments that they put together was enough to make it even easier for David Montgomery. And once you get that going, there is a thing of momentum that, that that it sets up where you know now that now that they're throwing downfield and completing passes downfield and doing it early now your receivers are in the game and now you can get a Darnell movie, Mooney to make like a spectacular grab on a on an over route or on a outbreaking route that might be a little bit you know that wasn't accurate enough really to be you know, close to pinpoint, but he's, he's in the game. He's warmed up. He's gotten his looks. He can, he can make that type of play. And then fields gets better because his receivers are playing those types of games. And instead of having multiple points of pressure, you can see him do things where right. one blitzer comes in, he baits the blitz, spins out of it. And then he fired. I thought it was the best throw he made all day or the best play he made all day. Cause he's, he baited the blitz, spun away from it at the last moment, worked back to his right, and threw on the move to throw open Cole Komet, who just slipped. And yeah. it would have been a big game, but he it was like a great display of what we saw Trevor Lawrence do on Thursday night yeah. um, where he hit LaVisca Chenault downfield. This was the same kind of thing. And, and the more comfortable he is and the more that you dictate terms, when one defender gets through – most really good mobile quarterbacks who can improvise some can handle that. It's yeah. a difference when you got Clowney Garrett and Tack McKinley and yeah. basically in a phone booth with you. Right. And you're expected to make do miracles, you know. And, and Fields is so good. Like I remember I, I did a huge breakdown at his game against Rutgers. And that for me was the moment where I was like, okay, I see it now. Because I, I was a, a field skeptic going into this season. Or last season, excuse me. He had two different plays in that game where he knew unblocked edge blitzer was coming. 
And on both of those moments, you can see him start to step up in the pocket. That defender flattens his path, and then he spins away. He just like you talked about, setting him up. So that's the stuff he could do, provided it's one point of pressure, not 17. Yeah, exactly. Now, I think his blitz reads pre-snap need to get better, and he yeah, got ear holes absolutely. in that game again, yep. as you brought up earlier this preseason, that that's gonna that's a problem with him that yep. they've got to figure out. And he that happened to him. He got the ball out, but it was backed up in his own area. And that's where you're like, that's what scares me the most. I don't want this guy to get banged up before he even gets started. But, right, you right. know. But Mark, we have an ad read. This we is have an ad read first. Yes, oh my we have an goodness. ad read. Check this out. This episode of the RSP Quick Game is not remotely brought to you by all the companies that tell you they'd be the perfect match to guest write content for your site. Cold emailing your ass from a basement in Uzbekistan or a beach house in Malta where football might as well be an uncommon fetish category with a rabid customer base interested in big butts. Big buck smut. These operations want you handing out flyers for the virtual Vegas strip. So if you're desperate for a buck, you too can stand on the corners of the web with your site, forcing shit into people's eyeballs that undercut the spirit of fair competition. Get your trench coat today. There we go. That was our first ad read, Mark. What'd you think? That was tremendous. Well, good. We'll have more of these down the line, I have a feeling. So... I think I heard my wife just start to scramble upstairs thinking something's happening to me. I'm coming home, baby. I'm coming home. Oh my goodness. Well, you know, now who what did what did Franz what did Fred Sanford call his mother-in-law? Oh God. That's what I was I gotta look I this know, up. That's yeah. what I was going for. Yeah. Well, I'm too bad. I'm not gonna have a good transition with this. But Elizabeth? Elizabeth. Yeah, but yeah. it wasn't. I'm calling Elizabeth. No, yeah. it was the it was the mother-in-law who'd come over, or Esther, Aunt oh, Esther. I don't remember who, what yeah. he would call her, but he'd always call her some derogatory name. But anyway, I'm I'm feeling like that I'm probably getting to this point as the Fred Sanford of Browns fans right now. Oh no, uh, because Baker Mayfield once again. I'm That's just done. I'm just at the point. I'm done with him. And and listen, he failed to make those three to five plays per game. He's a He's a journeyman quarterback to me. I, I'm just, you know, I you see little bits of progress, but it's not enough. The best quarterbacks have already made progress by this point. And you can make all the excuses you want about multiple offensive systems. And, and all, you know, there's lots of players that have multiple systems that have, have managed to, to get out of this thing. But this is who he is, you know. And he, he kept Minnesota in this game. Yep. You know, they won. But, you know, he is a scheme quarterback. He is not a transcendent of scheme quarterback. And, and this is why PFF is never going to be able to give you a good argument about um, Baker Mayfield because if they are supporting him, they're going to lean on the data and say, well, there's just not a big enough sample size for, for us to show that Baker Mayfield um, – hasn't you know doesn't perform well in certain situations and that's fine that's where the quantitative basically ends where basically you've got to throw that out and you got to look at the qualitative and the qualitative is is that when you look at the players he was compared to russell wilson drew Brees, brett Favre, all of them from the beginning from the beginning greg, greg cosell aside probably in all of the years he's been doing this probably criticized all of them appropriately and analyzing where they are at that moment. But one thing he probably didn't say was, I don't think they can make those three to five plays that transcend the scheme to make something happen. And Baker Mayfield was known as this for whatever reason, because when you look at his tape, he was as scheme dependent as I'd ever seen a quarterback be. It's just that he had a little bit of speed. It was like, I don't know. It was like watching... I, I, I'm not going to give a Jerry Cooney boxing restaurant. Well, I guess I am. It's kind of like watching Jerry Cooney and them going, oh, he's a heavyweight. He might be good, you know. Yeah. But, um, you know, we could obviously debate his merits again, and I'm okay if you want to do that. But 
I'm more interested in engaging my Browns fan fantasy of what might not happen because I have this sinking feeling they're going to resign him. You yeah. Know? So, but in this case, in this scenario that I need because I need therapy right now with the over okay. is a Mark, could you see a scenario where Aaron Rodgers is a Brown and what might it take? Yeah, I could see that scenario. It might take Miles Garrett or Jeremiah Wilson Komora. I mean, and first round picks. I mean, you know, the asking price from the Green Bay Packers will include multiple first round picks and a top tier defensive player or two. I mean, the Packers need help up front. And so that's what it might take. Are you willing to pay that if you're Cleveland? No, probably not. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and yeah, that's the, that's the denial. That's the initial burst of denial that Mark absolutely needed to deliver there. Because yep. I mean, while the Browns could probably spare a safety at this point, they're not getting rid of those two guys. Those guys no, are pillars no. of the, the defense that they've been building here. Um, so then, just out of you know, fan, now that we know that, would you prefer that massive investment in Rodgers, a mid-range short-term investment in someone like Matt Ryan who has an out in 2022, or a journeyman like Mitchell Trubisky, Ted? Teddy Bridgewater, Jameis Winston, or even a Marcus Mariota. I mean, these are guys that have played and quote unquote, I guess one <laughs> the NFL. <laughs> That's stretching it. Or are you just getting more of the same with you know, more of the same with I mean, Baker you, Mayfield? You, with, you with might be getting more of the same. I mean, you know, I, I immediately pulled up the Ryan Tannehill and that 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 contract's a non starter. I mean, now looking at that, that contract's probably a non starter. Um I could I make a case that you know under Kevin Stefanski, Mitchell Trubisky might be a better quarterback than he was in Chicago. Yeah, but it might be just more of the we're propping up an average quarterback at this point via scheme, and weren't are you going to count on Mitchell Trubisky to make the three to five throws per game that you know Baker Mayfield is not doing right now? I don't think you can make that bet. So out of those options, I'd look at Matt Ryan. I'd honestly look at Matt Ryan and say, look, you at least have some examples of, you know, Matt Ryan at least making maybe three of those three to five plays. He might not give you all five, but he might give you a couple of those. And I know our friend Charles McDonald had a great way to describe his arm right now. There's a little bit of pulled pork to it. And, and you know, maybe Matt Ryan doesn't have the same velocity he used to. He can still attack. He's still willing to attack some tighter windows. You saw that against the Giants. So if those are my options, it's probably Matt Ryan. Yeah, and considering that most of the opening open receivers in the Browns offense aren't running more than about thirty-five to forty yards downfield, Matt Ryan can Matt Ryan can hit that, and yeah. he can and he can certainly all day long hit the the corner route that Baker Mayfield can't seem to hit, and when he does, my Browns brethren fan base, long suffering, haven't had a good quarterback in twenty years plus, go he's elite. And it's like, right. no, dude, he's he's doing what he's supposed to do. So yeah. I, Matt Ryan can hit those all day long. He can he could make Odell Beckham look like Odell Beckham, you know, as opposed to Odell Thurman, you know. Right. You know, so <laughs> I mean, it's Beckham. just like that's that's I'm with you. I, I'm that's my thing is Matt Ryan would be a great fit. Matt Ryan doesn't need to be playing behind this offensive line in Atlanta right now. Get, yeah, I you mean, know. Ride behind this offensive line. Yeah, yeah. Wow. He th- that's all you because you're you're only going to need three plays in yeah. most situations in that in in that range of three to five plays. You're only going to need three in that, and yeah. Matt Ryan can hit him. So just just for the sake of it, because we have we have been long suffering critics of Kirk Cousins, you know, from time to time, and we, time we've time. we've talked about his merits, but we've yeah. also talked about. What what you know his style of being a baker in a way that, or possibly being one? Are you know if both were available for Cleveland's offense, who would you rather have? Right now, Cousins. Yeah, me too. And and, and I think Cousins. Although look, Minnesota had some struggles this past weekend. He's Baker with Chef curiosity tendencies. Yes. Like he had a very good start <laughs> to this year, and I, I think that there. Yeah, he might be a bit more scheme dependent than others, but in within that scheme, he will make a couple of those throws, and he has the ability to make a couple of those throws you need him to make under pressure. You know, the win against Seattle, 
the late third down conversion where it was a zero blitz and he had to hit the crosser under pressure and to make that throw, that's stuff that maybe Baker doesn't hit right now. And so between those two, it's Cousins. Yeah, and the thing I like about Cousins is is almost the exact thing I didn't like about Cousins in the past because he's been through the fire now. He's kind of figured out what he can and can't do more often. He's kind of, you know, some of the things he tried to be a hero on were ridiculous early in his career. Now he's kind of figured out how to tamp that back enough and he survived it enough. So you've got to give him credit because he's like, you know, the coaches, you've often seen coaches or former players, teammates of him criticize him and say, now we got a real quarterback or now we got, you know, and and kind of, and maybe it's a part of his personality that's, He's like, he's, um, and I don't, you know, I don't know enough about who he is, so it's probably not accurate, but from a distance, he, he just reminds me of like that annoying kid in your neighborhood who everyone gets annoyed with, but at the longer, you know, him, the more you kind of go, yeah, he's all right. He's, he can be annoying, but you kind of got to admire his, you know, tenacity for right. how he is and I get it. Like, I, and so when I look at Kirk Cousins, I feel like his tenacity has gotten him where he is, and I admire him for it. And I wouldn't mind now that I've seen Baker Mayfield, you know, over a, a long enough period of time. I believe I would rather have Kirk Cousins now. He's been through that fire, and I just don't think Mayfield's gonna. I I don't know. I'm not a believer that Mayfield's gonna get through that fire. Yeah. Um. Because Cousins showed more earlier in his career. But he had a couple of real glaring things that you knew could be corrected. I don't know if these things Mayfield Mayfield plays well when it's time to be vanilla, but when you add have to add a little bit of spice to it, it just crumbles. And I think yeah. that's the issue. So, what about Deshaun Watson? Is he even an option PR wise? Even if he cleared a legal hurdle, I mean, it would have to be a complete absolution of like all conduct right like this would have to be a scenario where all of these accusations are like proven to be like false proven to be you know not events proven to be like brutal misunderstandings whatever like and it's hard for me to sit here right now and say with the sheer volume of people that have accused him of this pattern of behavior that that's coming if that's sort of like massive wholesale absolution comes yeah I don't see that happening. Yeah. And then I'm, and then the one I'm fearing that I didn't even write down because as a question, because I could just see it and going, wow, is like the city cursed would be Jimmy Garoppolo. But oh, that, dear God. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, wow. uh, you know, that would yeah. be like that. If that happens, the city is just cursed. And, and that's all I can say. For yeah. That. So who's the best player at any position? that you feel hasn't reached his production peak due to surrounding talent or injury or just bad luck? I mean, I, w- I want to say Teddy Bridgewater in a sense. Like, I-, I feel like Teddy, if he didn't have that freak knee injury, was going to be in a great situation with a team that believed in him, a team that he sort of led to the playoffs during his end, the end of his time in Minnesota. And it's a tremendous credit to him as a person, as an athlete, as a competitor that he's back and he started in the National Football League. And he may end up when this season is over because of the weapons around him, you know, a, a top-tier quarterback. I'm not saying that's out of the realm of possibility. And this is a, still a team that's now 3-1. and one. But at the same time, like, things could have been so much different for him if he didn't have this knee injury. So I'll say Teddy. I like that. I mean, I, I, I'm with you because he seemed on the verge. Yeah. He was, like, on really the cusp good. of, like, making that breakthrough and then – that injury, it just it just altered the course. Yeah. And I always think of you analyzing him with the Jets when he's finding multiple windows while he's yep. working under pressure. Yep. When I hear people say, it just boggles my mind that anyone thinks he was any good. And I'm like, yeah, you, you haven't really studied the game yeah. if, you, if you think that. Um, but uh, while I could make the easy answer and say Nick Chubb, could give you 2000 yards rushing. I'd right. say from a real standpoint of like from where they are to what they could be. I just look at Josh Jacobs as a walking wounded player and, yeah. and some of the patchwork on that Raiders offensive line. And then some of the issues that they've had with as a defense, 
And I mean, if Josh Jacobs were on, you know, if he were on the Philadelphia Eagles, I think he could be yeah. a, a 13, 1400 yard rusher perennially. Um, I think he's that good. He's that skilled. He's a very skilled receiver. If they get him in good situations, I mean, yes, the, the chargers game last night was great tackling yeah. and, and really kind of them anticipating what was happening and doing a great job of getting in the position early. But you know, Josh Jacobs is a rugged back with excellent vision, just sophisticated in every level of the game that he that he participates in. And I would I would just say I would love to see him in a better situation because I think he could be one of the best backs in the league. Um, what was the best play or game plan you saw this week? Um, I actually wrote a piece about Nick Sirianni and his opening game script against Kansas City. And after Sirianni um, de- deservedly got a lot of criticism for the game plan against Dallas, that opening game drive script was fantastic with some of the flow stuff we talked about. First play outside zone out of gun to Miles Sanders. It goes for one yard, whatever. But the next play, they show a similar look, but then they boot Hurts off of it. And they hit the tight end in the flat. They did some other play action stuff with vertical concepts. The drive ultimately stalled. Um, they settled for three, but I loved that opening game script. And Jason Garrett, look, that Dan Olofsky did a video, and I agree with a lot of what he said in that video. Between Daniel Jones and the way he played and Jason Garrett, the way he called that game, some of the best stuff I've seen from those two together, and that went over to Woolens. A lot of vertical stuff. They had a post-wheel jet motion flat route to the left side where, you know, Kyle Rudolph was wide open on that wheel route. Nobody within like 10 yards of him. Um, And Daniel Jones, I don't want to say I'm all in on a a year three leap here, but he's making some throws that back to the defense, play action, snapping the eyes back around, picking up safety rotations and stuff that are impressive. And so I'm very impressed with what I saw from those two. And so the Giants and the Eagles were two teams that impressed me this week. Yeah, I like I, I can see that. Those were awesome. And certainly, you know, I talked about the Rams play earlier that kind of worked against that defensive flow to its advantage, exploiting it. Um, you know, another play that I liked like that was a Russell Wilson throw to DK Metcalf, where yeah. basically it was a, you know, it was a throwback concept. And you also had like your tight end working to the outside too. I think it was Parkinson and different yep. levels. And they, they hit, you know, he hit that very well. And I loved how he did that. I love the Mac Jones play for the touchdown to Hunter Henry, just because yeah. you kind of had a mesh type of concept and when yep. had one kind of then the Henry part of that mesh worked to the, you know, work to the middle of the field behind the linebacker and kind of drift behind that and get open. And, and I loved how Mac Jones opened up to the right flat you know, and then and then held the middle defenders before going there. I'd I'd say those were some of my favorite looks. You know, from the week, nothing unbelievable. You know, in terms right. of like, but still, the, I think I really enjoyed the play and the execution. Awesome, so, yeah, very cool. So, all right, we are gonna do something a little new here. Oh no, we're not doing that yet. Not Tell doing me that something yet. about this 2022 NFL draft class that you can sum up overall. And then if you want, you can give some specific examples if you'd like. I mean, I I think two things. One, this is going to be a defense heavy, I think, especially at the top of the board draft. I mean, the the pass rushing from Oregon, you know, the safety, Kyle Hamilton from Notre Dame, um, the corner, Stanley from LSU. Like, I I think you might see more defensive players in the top five than, than, you know, obviously, I think than quarterbacks. Um, I don't think you're seeing QBs go one, two, three, which allows me to transition to the quarterback discussion because, you know, I have people in my my DMs all the time asking about the quarterbacks. Like, hey, is this is this really going to be a bad class? I don't necessarily think it's going to be a bad class, but I think it's the type of group that you might see a little bit more patience in terms of when are we going to reach for that quarterback? You know, Spencer Rattler certainly has some talent. But there are some things that I still need to see him clean up. Sam Howell certainly has some talent, has some things he needs to clean up. And I think he's also propped up a bit by that UNC offense. You know, I I think Matt Corral, he had an opportunity for that sort of statement resume game. Didn't quite get it. 
And I, while I'm excited about him, and I think, look, I draft him in the first round. I don't know if it's going to be a top five, top 10 situation. Malik Willis might end up QB one, but he was going to be like a trade lands type prospect where is a team going to go all in on the trades? And maybe they will, maybe they will, maybe they will in the top five, but I'm just not sure of it. The guy that I'm most intrigued right now, honestly, the two are, are the two guys, Carson Strong from Nevada, Kenny Pickett from Pittsburgh. I, I think Pickett is, is the riser right now. Strawn was somebody people were looking at as a first round pick coming in. So I don't think he's necessarily rising up boards. Pickett, I think is rising up boards. Does he get to the first round? And eh, I don't know about that, but maybe. And so it, it's a different group of the quarterback class. That I'll say. Yeah. I I'd say I'm with you on the defense heavy draft. Cause then when I look at it from the position that I know a lot of people like to listen, hear me talk about is running backs. This is not a running back class that, I'm excited about compared to recent classes like the past four to five years of running back classes have been really good, even though, you know, it's a pass heavy league. But right now, I mean, you know, you look at some of these guys, I've watched Isaiah Spiller. There's certain things I like about his game, but you know, I'm not sure I'm completely sold on him as a, as a top talent. Brees Hall, I certainly understand some of the love for him, very smooth back. But again, there are some things with his game that I'm just not not there with. The guy that I like the most, like all around, might be Kenny Brooks, Kennedy mm-hmm. Brooks. Yeah. And Kennedy Brooks is one of those guys that doesn't have the special athletic traits, um, which I'm okay with, but NFL people usually yeah. aren't. Um, and so, you know, you go down the line. I mean, the guy who's, you, you know, mm-hmm. Kevin Harris is, again, intriguing, but not completely sold on him um might be a little bit more down the line but a lot of players on this level who are just like they might have the quickness you like but the vision i haven't seen a guy where i've been like blown away by their decision making and their ability to to run multiple blocking schemes that you would see in the nfl um and so yeah that's that's mine there so let's get to so M. Waldman's Frankenstein Lab. All right. So now I was a lit major, and I laugh because there's actually there's actually connection. I don't know if you know this, Mark, but oh boy, but M. Waldman is a character in in, in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. He's actually really? he's actually the professor at the university who experimented with a lot of different things that Frankenstein mentor has as a mentor but goes way too far interesting yeah so and and so i i always found that kind of interesting i remember reading that book and going oh that's that's interesting my name's in there but so so in the spirit of that and it being you know the month of halloween you must create a sum of a player from the following parts and i'm going to list the player plus his greatest strength and flaw from my perspective you get to pick one of these play. You get to pick three of these players, I guess, to create to create the um, your Frankens or four parts actually. Four parts. You get to pick four, four players. players to to basically do this. You now you get the baseline body, like we're gonna, you know, you get the body of Doug Flutie in terms of height and weight, um, and you, we're gonna give you a little bit of his inherent resourceful creativity as a decision maker. But and that's it. Not as not as ability. But now you get to pick from four other body parts or essences of these players that I'm gonna list. But when you pick one, you get the strength, but you also get the weakness that the greatest weakness that comes with it. So of your choices to add to this Doug Flutie body that you dug out of the graveyard, you have Drew Locke, which means you can either get his arm. If you get his arm, you have to deal with his work ethic. If you get Bernie's Kozar, you get his accuracy, but you got to deal with his lack of mobility. You can get Brett Favre, which means you get the toughness, but you get the recklessness. Jim McMahon, you get the charisma, but you get the recklessness. Marcus Mariota, mobility, but the pocket management. Jay Cutler, the arm, but the lack of charisma. <laughs> the lack of charisma. You know? And then you get Tim Tebow, which is the power the running power, but the mechan- the complete lack of mechanics as a thrower. What are your All four? Right. So this is a fascinating exercise for somebody that um, tried to, at times, I'm basically like Doug Flutie's size. So, I mean, no, 
Massachusetts kid. I actually, Bentley College football camp, the summer before my senior year of high school, one of the instructors was Doug Flutie's high school coach who told me that I reminded him a lot of Doug Flutie. That which, had to be one of the nicest things you heard. As one of the kid. nicest things anybody has ever said about me. So if you want to cue up <laughs> Glory Days by Bruce Braidstein and let me wax poetically about that moment where I thought maybe I could do something with my life, there you go. Um, so here are my four, okay? And you'll notice a theme here. I am going first with Bernie Kosar because I think you need the accuracy and I'm going to add a little, you know, I'm going to deal with the mobility issue here in a second, but I, I think baseline accuracy is important. Then we're stacking Jim McMahon on top of Red Favre, because if you were going to give me a quarterback of Doug Flutie size and stature, I want the toughest, most charismatic dude I can build. And I'll deal with the like recklessness because I could always view that as a positive in a sense. And to balance out the Kosar lack of athleticism, I will stack the Marcus Mariota. So I'll get at least an NFL average athlete at the quarterback position. And if you're going to have the toughness, you're going to have the accuracy, we can handle and deal with Mariota's failures of pocket management that way. So there is my Dr. Frankenstein QB. See, I love it. So that's, and that makes sense. Cause one of the things I mentioned is that I didn't mention here, but I wrote it to Mark was that you can pick a strength of one player to counteract the weakness of the other, but just that's what I did. Yeah. Average. So you, that's what you, I did with Mariota and Kosar. I get an NFL average quarterback, which with the recklessness, the toughness, the charisma and all that, I think I can survive with. Well, I'm going to go with, I'm going to go a similar route in a way. I'm going to start with Bernie Kosar. Cause I like the act, the accuracy and the mobility, which kind of um, the accuracy part is to me very important. Then I'm going to go with um, Tim Tebow because the, really? the power the power is going to be a helpful thing. He's going to be able to shake off defenders a la wow. Ben Ro- Roethlisberger. Now, I'm not worried about the mechanics because I'm going to – because of the accuracy. If he's accurate, then you can repeat them. The mechanics may suck, as we've seen with Brett Favre from a time to time. Mechanics the, don't matter until they matter, accurate, Matt. So he's still getting he's the still ball. He's still accurate. He's wow. still accurate. So I don't care about that. So then I'm going to go with – my final two are going to be Favre and McMahon. You got, you got to have, you got to, you know, if you're going to take that hit, you know, then you got to have the charisma because he's going to take punishment, but his team's going to run through a wall for him. Um, and he's tough enough to survive it. So he's going to still, he's not going to be on the injury list. If he's reckless from time to time, well, fine. It means he's a risk taker with accuracy and toughness in the pocket. Oh my God! I think I just mentioned it. I think I just built Ben Roethlisberger in his. You might have just built Ben Roethlisberger. (laughs) He was an Ohio kid back in the day. Yeah. Except maybe he didn't have charisma. I got Ben Roethlisberger with charisma, so I'm I'm kind of digging that. All right, so let's let's go with a blast from the past. I want you to match a quarterback from the past with the current team as it is today. Like if you could put this play, if you could put this player on any team. Where would they go where you just think it'd be a great fit? We'll lead off with your Doug Flutie. Okay. Um, Doug Flutie, I'm dropping him on the New England Patriots. And, and maybe this is a sort of open into the door of the Cam Newton discussion. But I just think that Josh McDaniels has shown an ability, you know, at times over his career to cater an offense to his quarterback and to what his quarterback can do. You look at some of the run game stuff they might be able to do. I drop Flutie back home with the new England Patriots. I'd put Flutie in Minnesota. Okay. I'd have with the, with the play action with the, you know, and he can give you that flair like Kirk cousins plus and give you some of that magic um, that he has when things go awry, but putting him in an, in an offense where he, he can pick his spots to be aggressive because it's either that or spreading them out, you know? So I'm, you know, I was tempted to do Sean McVay and have him with Sean, but I think Sean McVay is really happy with a strong arm quarterback. Um, So I'm not going there, but I'll say Minnesota. I think that would be the best. So what about Jim McMahon? I would have had a different answer yesterday, but today my answer is the Jacksonville Jaguars. Yeah. Because I want to see Jim McMahon dealing with Urban Meyer, mostly for the content. How about that? Where would you have had him before that? <laughs> Where would I have had him before? I mean, I, I, th- you know, I, I look around this league right now and I think 
an offense where, you know, he could work off a of play action. He could bring that sort of McMahon blue collar ethic. Like he can, you know, play with a strong defense like he did back in the day. And Matt, I might fix your Cleveland Browns with Jim McMahon. I would, I would take Jim McMahon in a heartbeat yeah. with the Cleveland Browns I in a heartbeat. But yeah. the first thing I thought of was purely aesthetic. And it was, I would like to see Jim McMahon in the silver and black. And oh, I yeah. would like to see him. I'd like to see him in Las Vegas because I think he's the one guy that, that would not, he would not get worn down by John, John Gruden. Yeah. I think he would one um, Steve, Steve Young, as I've talked about on the past year, Steve Young says it's Jim McMahon taught him a ton about football was one of the smartest quarterbacks he ever were, you know, was around um, and could have been a great quarterback if not for the injuries and where he wound up. And to have him with, I think he could take everything John Gruden would dish out and they would get along, you know, oh, yeah. but it would be, and he would be, he would be kind of the anti-David Carr or excuse me, Derek Carr in this, in, in essence. I like Derek Carr, but as, as you know, Bosa mentioned last night on basically that Derek Carr is a great player, but he, but he's a guy you smack that, him in the mouth, you smack and... him around, and he gets disoriented. Jim McMahon ain't that way. Jim yeah. McMahon will, you know, maybe to a fault, but yeah, he's a guy I would love to see, you know, because he'll attack downfield, and then he's got that he's got that charisma and that toughness, that blue collar play. I would love him there. Steve McNair, San Francisco. Yeah. I mean, this is the easy one, right? Yeah. Like as, as much as we both love Trey Lance, like when we talked about Trey Lance, like the name you brought up was Steve McNair. And I mean, I couldn't just imagine what Kyle Shanahan would dial up for Steve McNair. I mean, that offense would be so much fun to watch. Yeah. Now my ultimate Steve McNair would really wasn't Steve McNair anywhere than where he was in Tennessee. You just, you just have the balls to draft Randy Moss as opposed to yes. Kevin Dyson, and yeah. he's a Hall of Fame player. But since we're talking modern, I I'll go, I love the San Francisco one. I think that's great. But I'd put him. I'd put young Steve McNair in Baltimore, and wow. you know because you'd get the power and speed element, and his ability to hang in the pocket. Um, I think you you would you would get everything you got from Lamar Jackson and maybe even a little, and even more because he can make those perimeter throws and him in that offense he'd get a lot of free runs and trust me that that Steve McNair in his prime was yep. fast yeah so um Warren Moon Kansas City and this is not a knock on Patrick Mahomes but there's a case to be made that Warren Moon was Patrick Mahomes before Patrick Mahomes. I mean, the numbers he put up, the wow, way he threw I the love football. That. And Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy get into play in this era with Warren Moon. Yeah. I'd absolutely yeah. love it. Yeah. I can't. I, I mean, McVay would be fun. I yeah, think McVay be would be certainly McVay. fun, yeah. But I'm I can't top I can't top Kansas City. I think that's an absolutely stellar match for for him. And again, it's it's not anything on Mahomes. I mean, no. but no. if you could see Warren Moon in today's NFL with the with those weapons and with Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy, and if you don't believe me, kids, watch some Warren Moon. Yeah, both in college and then the CFL days and then his time in the NFL. Man, watch some Warren Moon. I'm telling you, I wish we could see all four of these quarterbacks in the NFL today. Oh yeah, know, especially with the way that they. The other one I'd the, love to see, yeah. Randall. Oh yeah, drop Randall Cunningham in today's NFL, man. Oh my goodness, all hell. Put him with McVeigh. Yeah, because you have the athleticism and the strong arm. Yeah, yeah, love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. All right, so let's end this with our one of our wacky kind of questions here. We go. here. We're gonna call this "Tales from the Wife." All right, so I'll lead. You know, I, you know, I just figured, you know, we got a range of, of married listeners. We have a range of single younger listeners, um, kind of learn what to ex maybe hear what to expect, you know, when you do, when you do finally meet that special someone to tie the knot. So, you know, just kind of talk about some of the odd, funny things with, um, about your wife or marriage you can share. And I got to say, I should make a podcast. That is just my wife saying shit. 
Like, because <laughs> my wife actually doesn't realize that fully formed stand-up comedy bits come out of her mouth. Like, yeah. and she's like serious about them and I'm dying laughing and I'm going, you realize like, this is like a fully formed stand-up comedy bit. And she's like, she looks at me and just starts laughing, but like, doesn't know. But I mean, like, especially when we're watching movies, cause she literally gets on a soapbox and starts like giving a, some sort of sermon or soapbox type of thing about what happened in the plot of a movie where we have to pause the movie because like she's talking over it for like 15 minutes, you know, but the other day I'm sitting down here with her and she's, and I just woke up and, and from like sun, it was Monday yesterday and just woke up from a long day Sunday. And I come down here downstairs with a bedhead and remind you, she's my wife. So she thinks I'm handsome. So the, you know, the, yeah. so she looks at me and she says that. And I just, you know, I smile and she goes, even with like your Christopher Walken hair that you got going on right now, she goes, men, she goes like, they've got, like they when they get older they just have it made they've got like the hair still they got the eyebrows the eyelashes women we just have cramps you know <laughs> <laughs> and that's literally like my wife like every day my wife says shit like that so i and i die laughing i go you realize like you could just write jokes you know and she's like but i was serious and i'm going right. i know but like Literally, at least three times a week, if I turned on the tape, I'd have a 60-minute stand-up bit. And she delivers it way better if she just wasn't a ham on stage. Like, I'd have her on shows and have her do stuff on video. But when she sees a camera, she gets that weird look on her face and goes ham and ruins it. Which is yeah. hilarious because, like, the, the the actual content is unbelievable. Oh, that's awesome. I absolutely love that. And, yeah, you know, I think we need that show. I think we need that show. <laughs> we do, too. Absolutely. Um, Let's see what can I where can I go about uh, my wife Rochelle. Um, the first off, the easiest one off the tee is her last name's Knievel, and there what? is a distant relationship to Evil Knievel uh, on my wife's side of the wow. family. There, you know, Eastern European, Polish, Czech. You know, my wife was born in Nebraska. Um, there's an Evil Knievel Museum and Hall of Fame, and my in-laws visited recently. We all get T-shirts um, from the Evil Knievel Museum and Hall of Fame. And I've long maintained that when my wife met the first guy that she was able to tolerate, she was going to marry him in a heartbeat just to drop the last name. And I actually <laughs> joked, "Can we? Can can I take your name? You know, can I be Mark Knievel? Because that would be fantastic." But she wanted to lose the, the Knievel last name. But yes, my wife is distantly related uh, to Evil Knievel. I, I think the other thing, this is, you know, you have those moments uh, with with me and I'm sure with you, there are myriad moments where you knew that this, this was the one. Like this right. was the person that you were going to spend the rest of your life with. This is the person that you just like click with. I mean, for me, my wife and I, during COVID, two kids here all the time. Now we're all working from home. Like it's been a grind, but yet- once if not multiple times a day even in the midst of this we find ways to make each other laugh which is absolutely amazing like if you have that and people always say marry your best friend you'll be happy forever it's i'm lucky enough to have done that yeah a moment when i knew was when it was like third year of law school and my parents had already met rochelle and, and, and stuff beforehand but my dad was traveling for business and he was down in the DC area. And then he had some free time to come down to, to Williamsburg and just hang out. And we like Williamsburg, Virginia, you go to like Bush gardens and you do stuff like that. My wife had this ability when she had had a drink or two to dance like an Irish jig. And it's <laughs> hilarious when she, she, she does this. She hasn't done it in a while, but it, it was one of her like bar tricks that she would do with friends to make them laugh. And when she did that for my dad in the middle of a crowded bar in Williamsburg, I just knew, look, this is somebody that forget everybody else. And I, I had known before then, but that was like a solidified moment where it was like, this is the person I'm going to spend the rest of my life. Because if you're willing to do that for a loved one, for their dad, like that's somebody you hold on to. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. I love the Knievel thing too. Yeah. Just as a, just as a little kid, I mean, he was, Evil Knievel was at the height of his powers when I was growing up. We would go, yeah. we'd go behind a Wendy's and literally jump milk crates off of a ramp, you know, and yeah. the Wendy's drive through after that, you know, like. In in the afternoon, right behind the apartments that we grew up in, I'm surprised I mean, none of us got killed. Right, and I remember like you know what before we got married and she changed her name. Like we would go out to like bars or restaurants or you know just buying beer at a store, and she'd have to turn over ID. And 
every time she did it, you could just see her just go, oh, here it comes. Because the person <laughs> looks at it like evil, like yeah. like evil Knievel. And yeah, and we've got, there's an evil Knievel bobblehead around here somewhere. <laughs> like, yeah, the, the whole nine yards. Yeah, we, man, the things we did to the evil Knievel doll with the motorcycle, man, I, you know. There was a video, did you see it like this summer? Somebody set it up in their like suburban cul-de-sac of the evil Knievel like motorcycle going off like 10 different ramps and it's it's such a you're simply the best and it's just one of my favorite like tiktok videos i've seen in a yeah. long time it was so good yeah i gotta check that out i yeah. definitely have to, i i laugh because my the, the last time i saw my wife dance we were we went bowling last month and she had never been bowling before and we i took her bowling and she uh she was dancing and I laughed. Uh, she was being silly and I was laughing as she was dancing in the bully alley. And then she proceeded to, to, to commit a foul on the, uh, in the lane and step over the line. And she didn't know that the, the lane was oiled and literally oh, fell no. on her ass. You know? oh, no. like, yeah. And she, and she ended up bruising her tailbone. It wasn't too bad, but for like the next two to three days, she was like, Are we, am I going to get x-rays? Cause I fell down while bowling. And again, this is the same athlete that I've told lots of stories about, but I laughed that she fell down in this. Meanwhile, she was in heels in a, at a Braves game before Braves game, and they like they got to take um, batting practice as part of like a business work thing, and she like hit the ball out of the infield, yeah. you know, in batting practice, and never like held a bat before, right? Never know? swung a bat, never just like rope and gappers, yeah. Like come on, and I'm just like, yeah, you got to be kidding me. So, <laughs> well, listen, folks, I hope you had fun listening to this. We always have fun doing it. You know, you can find Mark at Mark Schofield, me at Matt Waldman. Get the RSP. Check out Mark's work at TD Wire and all the various outlets. The Sco Show, Sco's Throws. You know, fan, he does just fantastic work. If you're not following his work and you've listened to this, then you either weren't listening or, you know, something's wrong with you and, and something that we can't help you with. So enjoy. Take care. <laughs>